Our scripture reading for today is taken from Romans chapter 1, reading from verses 8 through 17. Again, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. You can follow as I read from the NIV Bible this morning. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you, make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That, as, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Amen. The Lord had richest blessing to the reading of his holy and precious word. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. I am not ashamed of the gospel. That would be an awesome theme for a mission week someday. If and when we could all say it with conviction. Most of us cannot. Before I get in your face any more than that, I, I saw some faces this morning that I don't know, so I'm going to introduce myself. Uh, my name is John Wazardi, my wife Sue uh, prayed just a moment ago, and we were here for almost 20 years at CCC. I'm just going to tell you the two uh, encounters I had uh, as soon as we got to the church that really kind of summed this up. I, uh, I walked into uh, the office, and Ken and uh, his daughter were trying to introduce me to Elias, reintroduce me to Elias, because he didn't re remind, uh, remember me. And she said, you know, Pastor John used to be what Drew Wickland is now. And I said, yeah, young. <laughs> Way back then when I was at the church. Uh, but yeah, he took 
over my, my role here at CCC. And then the other one was I ran into Andy Luther in the lobby, and he said, welcome home, John. And then he said, well, I, I guess I can't say that to you anymore. And I would say, you can absolutely say that to me. Uh, my, my childhood home is now a green grassy lot. And uh, the home that I lived here in Zion for 15 years is now in someone else's capable hands. And this, these grounds and you people are as close to home as anything Sue and I have in the world. So I want you to know that I'm not uh, some super saint missionary coming to meddle in your business or to shame you uh, or to uh, cause you any embarrassment over this. Uh, I'm really here to confess. I've been a pastor now for approaching 30 years. We've been in Panama for eight. It's hard to imagine. Um, what I boldly proclaim Sunday after Sunday from the pulpit, I sometimes just barely stammer to get out in other settings, around people I don't know, around people who may not share my worldview. And you uh, it's just a joy to worship in this church. Uh, Sue and I have been it for so long uh, in our church because of COVID. But you, you sang the gospel, so I know you know it. You, you sang John 3.16, and then you, you sang loudly about your living hope. And yet some of you have a hard time even thinking about whispering it to friends, family, colleagues, so, I hope that we can just tackle this head on and get to the place that we can say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul's confession, I am not ashamed of the gospel, presupposes the possibility this morning, if you were in ABF, I, I loved what Carlene shared. I thought, oh, she's preaching my sermon. And at first I was, oh, man, she's preaching my sermon. But then it's like, that means the Holy Spirit's been at work, and he's bringing a message. And then when I saw uh, what the skit was this morning and the songs that we sang, uh, obvious that there's been leading and guiding uh, coming up to this time. I am not ashamed of the gospel presupposes the possibility of being ashamed of the gospel. It acknowledges the presence of forces in opposition to our message, of circumstances that tempted Paul to mute his message. And I want to begin by looking not at, at this passage that's on the stage so prominently, but um, on another one that describes some of what we're up against. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, I wasn't planning on doing this, but I, I want to do this because it's what I believe about you. Let me find it here, and I'm going to take just a little bit of liberty. To the church of God in Zion to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. 
That's what I believe about those of you who I've known for so long. That's what I trust about those of you that I don't. That you're called. That you're part of the, the family of believers. Well, Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians with all kinds of issues. And if you've ever read it, you know he addresses all sorts of pastoral concerns. But his opening one has to do with a report that he heard that there was division in the church. The church was lining up behind their favorite teachers. Some were saying, I follow Paul. Others, I follow Apollos. Others still, I follow Cephas or Peter. And then the really spiritual ones were saying, well, I follow Christ. So Paul asked them, is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And although he doesn't say the word no, he's kind of shouting it. No, he answers his own question in verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. As near as I can understand this, Paul feared that this allegiance to different teachers was a sign that people were getting caught up in the wisdom of the man rather than in the power of the message. He's warning, do not get enamored with human wisdom because from the world's perspective, well, look at verse 18, 1 Corinthians 1.18. From the world's perspective, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The message of the cross, the message that the God-man died on a cross for your sin, paying your wage exactly what you deserved, no less, that he suffered and died there and then was raised again uh, to guarantee you eternal life. That message is foolishness to those who have rejected Christ. I want to jump ahead a little bit and uh, tell you why that was true in Paul's day and talk some about why it's true in our day. Verse 22, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. I don't know if you've ever thought about what a miraculous phenomena it is that there is a church here, that there's a church anywhere in the world, that Christianity is the leading religion on the globe, that it is the major force it is in the world today. Because if you read Paul... He acknowledges that the method by which God chose to save sinners was delivered in a package that was abhorrent to the dominant religious and philosophical beliefs of his day. You can see it in the ministry of Jesus, what Paul was talking about. Uh, during his earthly ministry, the religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, came at him again and again saying, give us a sign for your authority. Do something to prove who you say you are. 
I don't know how they dismissed the healings that happened right in front of them. I don't know how they uh, brushed off somehow that he had raised people from the dead. Uh, Sometimes they attributed it to the works of Satan. Sometimes they must have just turned a blind eye. But finally, Jesus said to these guys, you can look at the sky, look at the color, and forecast what the weather's going to be, and let you, you can't see what's happening right in front of you, and discern the times. And then he said, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And if you read that passage, you know that Jesus, it says there that Jesus was talking about his own death and resurrection. Even when that happened, the majority of Jews did not accept who he was. They could not imagine a Messiah like that. He's not what they had dreamed up. They could not imagine a Messiah who would sacrifice his life on a Roman cross. The thought was repugnant to the Jews. Uh, It was a stumbling block, as Paul says. They could point to their own law, Deuteronomy, and say, no, no, no. Anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. And although they couldn't see that that was exactly the truth they needed to understand, that Jesus was under God's curse on their behalf, they rejected him. Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Then the message was expanded and taken to the Gentile world, but it it faced aggressive oppression there as well. Although you know that the, the, the world was ruled by Rome militarily, at least at that time, it was still ruled by Greek thought. Greek religion and philosophy dominated uh, the world, and it stood opposed to the cross. Greek wisdom told them that God could appear as a man, but he could never become man to the extent that he could suffer and die. Greek wisdom said that gods are impassive. They don't have emotions. So how could a God-man fill grief and suffering? To experience such a base human emotion, they, they said, would be to be less than God. He could never experience suffering. And if they ever got past the cross that they thought was foolishness, they really couldn't comprehend the idea of a resurrection. Greeks believed that their bodies were evil and their spirits were good, and the the ultimate goal of their religion was to free uh, the spirit from the body. So why in the world would you want a bodily resurrection like Jesus had, or that he offered and guaranteed for his followers? It It was foolishness, absurdity. Nothing has changed. Your faith is foolish to other major religions and to the ruling philosophies of our world. Jesus and the religious uh, leaders of the day shared extremely similar worldviews, but their differences were enough to make the Pharisees want to kill Jesus. If you think of our world, A little over 31% of the people on our globe claim to be followers of Jesus Christ in some form. According to polls, 
25% are Islam, follow Islam. Do you you know what, now if Randy's here, I'm nervous about saying this because he's like an expert on Islam, but this is what I've heard and, and read about Islam and what it teaches about Jesus. The Quran mentions Isa al-Masih 93 times. And when you add the other hadith and things like that, what I've, what I've been told is that the Quran talks about Jesus more than it talks about Muhammad. It claims Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that he was born sinless, that he was a great miracle worker. It teaches that in his day he was the greatest prophet of the one true God. Very similar worldviews, but if you say that Jesus is the Son of God, it's blasphemy. If you say that he died on a cross, it's foolishness. No, they say he was taken up into heaven. So there are religions that are diametrically opposed to what you believe about Jesus Christ. And there are those who with cold logic exclude anything supernatural. Certainly the cross. And this has more likely been part of your experience. I recently watched an interview, maybe you'll know these names, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Richard Dawkins. Anybody want to groan? Both are PhDs. Uh, the first is an astrophysicist. Uh, astrophysicist. <laughs> the second is an evolutionary biologist, and they are kind of pop stars in the scientific world. Both are evolutionary atheists. And while Tyson is kinder in his approach to people of faith, both are dedicated to debunking any kind of faith in the supernatural through science. So in this interview, they they believe that faith and the supernatural, uh, science and the supernatural are incompatible. In this interview, the, the question that Tyson asks on his talk show is, so Richard, what is the future of religion in society? And Dawkins answers by uh, speaking optimistically about statistics showing that the world is becoming increasingly atheistic. 20, 25% of the world population, he claims, no longer have allegiance to any religion. He's very excited about this, by the way. Tyson counters, that's interesting, but couldn't it just settle there? Listen to what Dawkins says. Well, it could do that. But whatever the trend is, I'm hoping that it will continue. Except unless, of course, what's replacing religion is something like woo-woo astrology. You know, the kind of nonsense that is not based on God, but is nevertheless supernatural and just as bad, if not worse. Your faith is bad. There are a few things that are worse, but your faith is bad to this man. Tyson then shares with him a study that strongly suggests that if a person abandons their religion, they'll replace it with something like a pseudoscience. And he doesn't specifically mention Christians, but he talks about pollsters traveling across the U.S., going through the Bible Belt, so they're obviously interviewing people who have at least identified as Christians, and then ending up in the Northwest. And they're asking questions like, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you regularly attend church? And then they add on to that things like, and do you 
practice things like astrology or crystal healing or spirit energies, things they consider pseudosciences. They found that the more strongly a person believed in Jesus Christ, the lower their belief was in these other mystical, satanic things. So I hope that that's true of you, that if you, you have a high belief in, belief in Jesus Christ and don't go in for any of this other stuff. They found that the lower a person's commitment to Christ was the higher their adoption of things like crystal healing and spirit energies. Uh, that's the data that Tyson interpreted as if you abandon your faith, you're likely to replace it with a pseudoscience. So he asked Dawkins, what do you think of that? And Dawkins responds, deeply depressing that. It discourages me, I must confess. It's as though there is a kind of quotient of nonsense which needs to be filled, and if religion doesn't fill it, then other, some, some other sort of nonsense will. Your faith, your belief in Jesus Christ is woo-woo nonsense to most, a lot of the world. Dawkins certainly doesn't represent everyone in the scientific community, but he's part of a growing number of anti-faith evangelists. And to them, anything based in the supernatural, like your belief in a loving creator of this world, a God-man who died on the cross in your behalf is woo-woo nonsense. To them, your faith is foolish. And in one part of the interview, Dawkins basically labels you as perpetrators. If you share what you believe, you are perpetrators of foolishness. You know, I was going to... Well, I'll give this example. It's not as closely tied to salvation and to the gospel, but it is part of what we believe because we embrace God's word. We've been going through, in my church in Panama, we've been going through uh, a study of Proverbs, and I've just been bowled over by how countercultural Proverbs is, how relevant but countercultural it is. That was probably never more apparent to the people in my congregation than when I spoke on human sexuality, God's view for human, God's design for human sexuality. One man, one woman, together in a lifelong, monogamous, faithful covenant relationship. Pastors in three different countries have been arrested in the last two years for teaching that. Not, not going the other way and condemning, but just teaching what Jesus taught, teaching what Moses wrote. Many people today would call that belief foolish, but if you want to test, you know, this morning Carlene said she was talking about feeling foolish or ashamed in another culture. You are living in a foreign culture, foreign to your faith. And if you want to experience that, just tell somebody in your workplace or in your school or wherever you have influence, just tell them what Jesus Christ said about for this reason a man, will leave, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Just quoting what God designed from the beginning and, and you'll find out that you are a stranger and an alien in this world. 
and that many people not only see your faith as foolish, but narrow, outmoded, bigoted, hateful. And I want to say, I hope this will be helpful, get used to it. It's not going to get easier. We sang a song this morning I'd never heard before where I'm not exactly what, sure what the song means if I could speak Jesus over you. I believe that things change when I speak about Jesus to you and you receive it. I don't have any power to speak things over you, but if I could, if I could just declare something in Jesus' name and you would be free from something, it would be from the addiction of comfort and uh, safety. And I, I would, uh, I can't remember the other part of the song now, but I just thought, yeah, we do need chains broken. Chains of reluctance and chains of shame when it comes to proclaiming the gospel that is the power for salvation. So that's what you're up against. I hope I didn't spend too much time on that. I'm not trying to discourage you, but I think we have to be honest that the angst that we feel about sharing our faith is not imaginary. Much of the world views you as a fool. And that's exactly what God's Word says. Promises that anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil men and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13. So that's what you're up against. Um, how should we respond? How could Paul keep going? How could Paul keep preaching in a society that was diametrically opposed, both religiously and philosophically, uh, to his gospel, in a culture where it was repugnant? How did he keep going? How did he face such opposition and hang on and proclaim the message and even Say, I am not ashamed. Let's look again at uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18. I'm going to read 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wis in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. The Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. I want you to notice first that Paul pictures two divergent uh, paths and two 
groups of people on those paths. The, the way that I actually got to this passage was I was preaching Proverbs. And in the back of my mind was this, this idea that in the, in the New Testament somewhere, it says that Jesus is our wisdom. And so I wanted to be sure that people in my congregation are not just going, yeah, that wisdom sounds like what I believe. I'll adopt that while sitting there lost, not knowing Christ. And when I came to this passage, I was just amazed by how well it links with Proverbs. Proverbs is talking about one uh, path, the path of wisdom, of following God, and another path of foolishness, of rejecting God and his ways. And here Paul is doing something very similar. He pictures two paths, two groups of people. Those who accept the preaching of the cross are being saved. And those who reject the cross as foolishness are perishing. I think INGs are really important in God's word. Um, It's interesting that Paul talks about both salvation and perishing as present continuing action. We sang a song that talked about our salvation as finished action. And that is consistent with God's word. Read Romans 8. Paul talks about our salvation in Jesus Christ as such a certainty that he uses nothing but past tense in terms of our justification, our sanctification, and, and even our glorification. He, he says, you have been glorified. So Paul talks about our salvation as a done deal, accomplished in Christ, irrevocable, finished, which is great news. But here he talks about it as something ongoing. And there is truth to that, isn't there? We have not received the full measure of salvation yet. That Our salvation will not be culminated, complete, until we stand in the presence of Christ, redeemed and freed from sin. We still have more to look forward to. But I, I wonder if he didn't write this in a hopeful way. If we haven't received everything that comes with salvation in Jesus Christ, then people lost in the world have not received everything that comes with perishing yet. Paul pled at some churches, I forget the church right now, but he said, you know how I pled with you night and day for three years with tears. He did that because he had hope that obstinate, stubborn people who were rejecting Jesus Christ could still change. And that until they died, there was hope that their perishing would not be complete, but that they could turn and repent and and be saved. While sinners breathe, there is hope for repentance and salvation. And don't forget the guy who was writing all of this, both Romans and Corinthians, a man who said, I at first intensely persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Look what God did with Paul. My first response while listening to Tyson and Dawkins was anger, that somebody would talk about me that way and talk about my precious faith in Jesus Christ and write me off without even knowing me, write me off as a fool. But the longer I listened to these two guys having a joy fest about their their religion, which is atheism, total materialism, and talking about the beauty of the truth of science, and there is some beauty, in science, but the more I listened to it, the more 
compassion I started to feel for these men. I began praying for them while I was listening to the, to the interview. We have to stand our ground. We have to be prepared in season and out of season to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ. We never have to do it pugnaciously or meanly or we never have to respond unkindly to a world that will be unkind to us. We will earnestly pray for those who oppose the gospel. If someone disparages your faith and calls you a fool, don't respond in kind. Don't be harsh with them because they already are headed to the harshest faith fate that can be imagined. Hell, eternity without Jesus Christ. We don't have to add anything onto that. But just with love and mercy and remembering where we came from and what Christ did in our lives, uh, communicate what we believe to them. All of the philosophers and religions of man have never arrived at a true knowledge of God. That was only revealed in Jesus Christ. God spoke at many, at many times and in various ways, Hebrews says, but in these last days he has spoken through Christ. Even though Paul knew that many in the world would hear his preaching as foolishness, he also knew that it was God's ordained way for people to be saved. God knew that God had ordained through the foolishness of preaching, that's what he says, the foolishness of what was preached, Verse 22, to save those who believed. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Masses of Jews and Greeks rejected the gospel and would have nothing to do with it and opposed it vehemently, but not all. Some heard what the world thought was foolish and embraced it and came to Christ and eternal life. The, the, the percentages, I'm sure, will be very similar. <laughs> Many will hear our message and reject it as foolish and reject us as fools, but not all. Not all. And it's for those that we speak, those who have been called. Paul was different than we are in the depth of his belief in the power of the gospel. The power that transformed him from a, a murderer of Christians into a maker of Christians. Not that any pastor makes Christians, but an evangelist for Christ. Do you believe in the power of the message? It's not about the messenger. Do you believe? It's not about you. Do you believe in the power of the message? Do you believe in the power of the one who goes before you and testifies, the Holy Spirit who's in the world convicting men of guilt in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment? If, if you are ever moved to speak a word about Jesus Christ to a friend, colleague, family member, you're not the first one there. The Holy Spirit has been working in their lives and that's why you've been called to add your witness to what he's been doing so you don't go in alone. Do you believe in the power of the message? Christians, 
Christians should be wise. Christians should get all the education they can. Christians should be very wise in the word, get multiple degrees, whatever. Get any kind of earthly wisdom you can. Get spiritual wisdom. But you will never truly be wise until you know Jesus Christ. This passage says Jesus is the power and wisdom of God. So what are you going to count as wisdom? Are you going to look to the world to consider you wise, or are you going to count Jesus Christ as the ultimate, Jesus Christ in the gospel, as the ultimate testimony of wisdom? Christians must stop being enamored with what the world thinks of us, how the world views us, whether they think we're smart or intelligent or woke or cool or whatever. We cannot be enamored with that. We have to have confidence in the gospel and the power of the God behind the gospel. We need faith that what the world views as foolish and weak you know, it says the, the foolishness of God, the wisdom of God is stronger than the wisdom and, and, and uh, power of the world. Well, God can't ever be unwise. He can't ever be uh, weak. But what the world views as weak and unwise is stronger than everything that they embrace because it comes from God. The preaching of the cross has not only withstood the onslaught of false religions and secularism, it is flourishing around the globe in the, in the hardest of soils. I hope that as the soil hardens in America, the church will actually grow and flourish. Well, look at verses 26 through 29. It's time for some humble pie. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. The implication is, so why are you thinking about those things now? But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not uh, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore it is written, as it is written, let him who boast, boast in the Lord. For time's sake, I really need to condense this down. Remember Paul wrote this letter out of a concern that believers were lining up behind and identifying with their favorite teachers. So he reminds them, look, God didn't choose you that way. God didn't choose you based on earthly wisdom, your influence, your family name. It's not about the messenger. It's about the power of the message. He says that God has wired the universe so that no one can boast before him. There's never going to be a pastor in heaven saying, yeah, well, I had 30,000 people in my congregation. It's, it's not going to happen. There's, God has wired the universe so that no one gets to boast. Only boast about him. And uh, if you read your Old Testament, you know this. Every time he came through to help his people, 
he did it in a way that they couldn't say, look what Israel did. He did it. Sometimes he stripped them to the bare minimum so he could do it. It's about the power of the message, not the messenger. And that is awesome news for anyone who feels ashamed of the gospel, who, who feels some trepidation. You're not ashamed of the message. You love the message. It's the core of who you are, but speaking it's a little harder. This is good news because it's not about the messenger. It's about the message. You can go in with confidence knowing that God is on the hook for all the results. That's what Paul says. It is because of God that you are in Christ. Not because of Paul, not because of Apollos or Cephas. It's because of Paul, it's because of God that you are in Christ. I believe that's one of the most important things that we can remember as we seek to be gospel witnesses to our world. It is because of him that you are in Christ. Why would it be different than how you came? <laughs> you didn't wake up one day brilliant and decide Jesus was the best deal. The Holy Spirit made it possible for you to hear and understand the message. Paul says that in the next chapter that, hey, the, the guy without the Spirit cannot, the man without the Spirit cannot accept what we're saying because they're spiritual words. So why would it be different from how you're saved? The fact that you came to faith in Jesus Christ is 100% God's doing, God's mercy, God's plan. And now in Christ, I love how this passage ends, you get everything that God ever required from his people. This, I, I'm talking about where it says that Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. What God required from his people in the Old Testament is given to us in Christ. In Christ, you received a new legal standing. That's what righteousness is, a, a declaration that God's moral requirements have been satisfied. You could never have got that on your own. But in Christ, you get everything that God has required. It's yours in Christ. In Christ, you are set apart. That's what holy means, what sanctified means. You are set apart for sacred use. Your life has a new purpose. You're dedicated to God. Before, you were incapable of pleasing him or growing in his image, but in Christ, you can. And I love the last one. If you ever come and visit us in Panama, they love to stamp things. And uh, no matter where you are, they print out your receipt, and then they have this big red stamp. Pagado. Paid. Paid. In Christ, you have been ransomed and set free from the wages of sin. You couldn't pay that price. I'm sure you're probably singing it too. What riches of mercy he lavished on us. His blood was... Oh, I always forget it when I try to quote it. Do you know that song? Do you recognize it? Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. You could not pay the price you owed, but in Christ, it's canceled. Pagado. 
Can we live out of the truth of the power of the gospel for salvation and lose our shame? Because of God you are in Christ who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day, for your mercies that are new every morning, your faithfulness that is great. We see so many testimonies of that in our life. This church is a testimony to me of that, that you have preserved it and preserved the teaching of your word in it and have granted one, one of the things I miss most deeply about this church is the fellowship of godly men and women in leadership who love you and your people and your truth and come together around that and support one another and I have so missed that. But Father, what a testimony of your faithfulness to these people. I pray that they would appreciate it and love and use it to grow, use it to get equipped to minister in their world. A church that's all in church will never reach the world. But if we lose our shame and learn to just boast in the Lord, boast about what he's doing, what he has done in our life, what he's secured for our future. If people see um, men and women who are not afraid of COVID, whether uh, it's getting the, the shot or not getting the shot, we, we so trust Jesus Christ. We so believe that every, every day was written in his book before one of them came to be, that we just trust and make our best decisions and move ahead in this world. If people see men and women without fear because we believe the gospel. We believe in a bodily resurrection and, and believe all the things that we have in Christ that we have everything we need for life and godliness in our knowledge of Christ Jesus. Father, help us to lose any shame associated with the gospel. Father, I would pray specifically, you've done this in my life, I pray that for each person here today, you would arrange an encounter with a person where the question that they ask is so clear that to not speak would, would just be an obvious denial of what we believe. And I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit in that moment you would release each person from their fear and shame and trepidation and allow them to speak the gospel to a lost world. Help us to remember that it's not about our eloquence, it's not about our intelligence. What the world sees as foolish is the power of God for salvation. Father, we ask for these mercies and help in the powerful name of Jesus. And let all God's people say, Amen.